it's Julie, and welcome to the Corporate Yogi Podcast. Today's episode is chock full of tough love, because we're talking about underperformers. So ominous, right? I feel like I should say dun-dun-dun after I say underperformers. This is one of the least favorite conversations that clients have with me. You see, whenever it comes up, they know, they know deep down inside that they are tolerating someone, but for whatever reason, they're putting off doing something about it. They have that head tilt side to side like, oh, yeah, I know there's the resistance in their language that tells me they know they should do something, but they just don't really want to. They often don't fully understand the true ramifications of tolerating an underperformer. So that's what we're going to talk about today. The theme of underperformers, well, this is not something new to me. This is something that first came into my awareness, I'd say more than 20 years ago, when I read the book Good to Great, which is an amazing book. It's a classic business book by Jim Collins, and he introduces this concept of having the right people on your team. He uses the analogy of a bus, and I still remember it today. He says, you have to get the right people on your bus and you have to get the wrong people off the bus. The metaphor continues on to making sure that the right people are in the right seats on the bus, doing the right things. Clearly, this metaphor that he created was sticky enough to have made an impact and be remembered all these years later. It's an important message. If you want to do great things with your team, you have to have the right people on your team. The other half of the equation that often gets left out is you have to also be a great leader who will nurture and inspire your team to consistently be able to get the best out of them. Another analogy that I hear is this A player, B player. You might have heard of this too. So you want to have a team. This is your goal to have a team full of A players and not harbor any B players, let alone any C players on your team. Now, personally, I don't love this player analogy as much as I do. It feels a little little judgy, a little cliquey to me, but some people really resonate with it and it lands with them. So, you know, you've got to find the one that really works for you. Now, recently, I came across an approach from Netflix that I really, really do like the way that they ensure that they always have top performers. And I want to share that with you today. And in this episode, I'm going to ensure that we look at this from both sides, not just from the side of people managers, but we're also going to talk about this from the perspective of, hey, what about you as an employee? What if you feel like you're being labeled as the underperformer? So here's a look at what you're going to learn today. First, we're going to talk about the impact of tolerating underperformers on your team. You may think that it is isolated, and I'm here to tell you that it is not. Second, we're going to talk about the approach that Netflix uses to ensure that they don't have any underperformers. And then in the third segment, we will address this topic from the employee perspective. If you suspect that you might be an underperformer, there is something that you can do. Well, there's a number of things you can do. So get out of your head into your heart, and let's dive right in, shall we? Now, because this topic of underperformers is a 
common conversation that I have with clients, I have heard every excuse in the book, every excuse to tolerate an underperformer or avoid doing something about it. Leaders always know full well that the underperformers are there. They know that they have to do something about it, but they're simply not ready to deal with it yet because it's always seems to be more complicated than it is. So here are some of the most common excuses that I hear. Number one, well, they've been here at the company forever. Number two, they're really close with others on the team, you know, and I don't want to like break up the band and alienate others. Three, what if it impacts our culture and people don't feel safe on the team anymore? And lastly, the most common resistance that I hear, what will people think of me? And yes, this last one is a big realization. I see this all the time. What will people think of me if I let go of this employee? Our image consultant saboteur swoops in and makes things super complicated and distracts us from the facts. The saboteur worries that people will think we're hard ass or that we're too tough, that we're big meanie. But I want you to remember one simple thing. It's not your fault that they are underperformers. That's important. I'm going to say it again. It's not your fault that they are underperformers. Unless, of course, it is your fault, which is a whole different podcast episode and an answer that only you, your boss, and likely your coach knows and understands. This episode assumes that you are today a solid leader and you've done everything in your power to get that person to show up and contribute at 100%. So let's have that tough love conversation about the impact of tolerating this underperformer. We often think that it is isolated to this one person on your team. They might only be giving 50% when the other team members say you have five other people on your team, they're all giving it 100%. So that one salary, only one of six is really not optimized, which sucks. But you know what? It's not a big deal. You know, you pick up the slack when you can, and you just deal with it. But in reality, this scenario is not isolated to that one person and to you as their manager. Oh, no, everyone on your team is picking up their slack or is impacted by them in some way, or has developed a way of working around them. It's more like a ripple effect throughout your team, through your department, and sometimes even the whole company. The biggest danger is that it jeopardizes your top talent the most, and you risk losing them. Yes, underperformers can end up driving away your top talent. How is that for tough love, right? It's true though. So instead of making a list of reasons why you can't let them go or focusing on how uncomfortable that it will be or listening to your image consultant saboteur, here's a list of reasons why you must let them go. Number one, decreased performance. This will impact the whole team and possibly outside of your team. If they're operating at 50% without any consequences, that might rub off on other people in your team. They might start to think, well, you know, so-and-so isn't doing it. Why do I bother? No one else cares. They never get in trouble for it. Number two, it lowers morale. People want to be inspired. 
right? They want to be motivated by others that they work for. They want to have colleagues that are going to inspire them and stimulate their ideas. They want to know that the bar is set high, and that's why they were picked for this team. If they see colleagues operating way below that performance bar, they're going to start to question if they really want to be part of this team. Number three, you lose credibility as a manager. Do you really think that people don't notice you're underperformer? People see it. They know. They know you're not hiding it from anyone. Do you want to be seen as soft? And in reality, this is fodder for gossip and side conversations, which are so damaging in a company. If I could remove one thing, I would remove the ability for people to gossip and have side conversations. I wish we didn't have to deal with it, but let's be real. It happens. And your underperformer is a prime topic for gossip. And number four, you decrease your impact as a manager. Let's say you assign a new project to two different people on your team, one of whom always delivers, and the other one is your underperformer. So how many times throughout the week are you going to worry about your employee A? Probably not that much. Why would you? They always deliver. They always get things done. But what about your underperformer? How many times during the week are you going to worry, wonder, check in on them, and maybe even make contingency plans if they don't deliver? Think of all this time and energy and effort that it takes you to focus on this underperformer. This is energy and time away from you doing your job, from being strategic, from being a visionary and thinking at that high level. And lastly, number five, the most important one of all, you risk losing the good talent on your team because they will be frustrated by the underperformer and they won't want to stick around. And one quick caveat here, when I'm talking about underperformers, I'm talking about chronic underperformers, not just someone who's having a bad week, not just someone who is going through a rough patch that might impact their performance, like an illness, a sick loved one, or some other personal situation that impacts them in the short term. That's different, and that needs to be handled on a case-by-case basis. So, Over the holidays, I recently finished the book, No Rules Rules, Netflix and the Culture of Reinvention by Reed Hastings, founder of Netflix, and Aaron Meyer. So this is a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. Five stars, five out of five. There's lots of gems in there, and Reed shares really, really specific examples from the company from employees and also from managers, actual real-world scenarios that help you understand how they put their leadership philosophy into practice. They talk about the things that worked, the things that didn't work, and how they've had to humbly tweak their process over the years. And I love this because so often when you read a leadership book, it's talking about philosophy at a very high level, not actually implementing it into, so how does that actually work if you have unlimited vacation? What do you actually do? What would be some of the scenarios that would show up that you have to troubleshoot for? So he's very candid in sharing, you know, pulling back the curtain and really sharing some good examples. 
So I want to introduce you to one important concept that applies to our topic today of underperformers. It is called the keeper test. And it's something that they developed and still actively use at Netflix. Here's how it works. You ask yourself, if someone on my team were to quit tomorrow, would I fight to keep them? Or would I accept their resignation, perhaps with a little bit of relief? If the latter, if you would be a little bit relieved that they are leaving, then you should give them an adequate, generous severance package, and you should look for a star, someone that you would fight to keep. All right, that's the keeper test. You put yourself in that scenario, stand in those shoes, and you say, imagine if someone on my team were to leave. Would I be upset about it or wouldn't I? So it sounds a little bit harsh at first, but the goal here simply is to remove any shame from anyone who has let go from Netflix. So here's how Reed explains it in practice. If you look at any high-performance Olympic team, if a person is cut from the team, they're still admired for having made the cut, for having the guts and the skill to be part of that Olympic team in the first place. So when you maintain a high standard of what it takes to get on the team, to be part of that team, then the focus and the attention is put on that. And if you are let go, then there's no shame, there's no hard feelings involved at all. So to implement the keeper test, you have to be all in. It's not just something that you can pick and choose, you can do now and then. It has to be an all in strategy and it has to be part of having a really high density talent strategy. You can't just dip a toe here and there. It's something that you have to commit and be all in. So I don't want this episode to feel one-sided. So if you're not a people manager and you consider yourself on the receiving end of the keeper test, you might start to feel a little helpless or a little powerless. But fear not, Reed absolutely addresses this in the book as well. He openly admits that, yeah, he has had some employees struggle with the fear of being fired. They feel that insecurity and they worry about making mistakes. So to empower them, he shares a technique that they can use with their managers instead of putting all the power in the hands of the people managers. He calls it the keeper test prompt question. So here's how that one works. During your next one-on-one meeting, you can ask your manager, if I were thinking of leaving, how hard would you fight to change my mind? That's a very candid question. Very, very honest and open and direct question to find out where they stand and what your boss currently thinks of you. Now, you have to ask yourself, do you, and I'm curious too, do you work in an environment where you feel comfortable enough to have that conversation with your boss? And if you're a manager, are you comfortable or courageous enough in answering this directly to your employee? Would you tell them the truth? Asking this type of direct question does require a lot of honesty, a lot of pre-existing trust, a lot of psychological safety, and 
I'm not naive. I know that this doesn't exist on all teams everywhere. I get it. This is why I always strongly encourage you to start all of your working relationships with a relationship design conversation at the start to really set that tone to be able to have these hard conversations at any point down the road. If you're both conscious individuals, then there's no reason why you can't have open and honest conversations, but you've got to do it from the start. One of the most common tips that I give to people when they start a new job, in addition to doing a relationship design agreement with your manager, is making sure that you have a touch point for expectations. Because there's nothing worse than starting a new job and at that three-week point, sometimes it's a little bit more, you start to wonder, like, am I on track? Am I adding value? And you start to just chase your tail in circles wondering it's better yet to have that conversation up front and say, hey, let's have a touch point at two weeks or at one month and see if I'm on track with your expectations or not. Everything can be sorted out in advance, but you've got to have those conversations up front. If you do, then you can have the touch point check-in conversation so much easier down the road. Now, Having this keeper test prompt question, it does require candor on both sides. You have to both be honest or else it won't work. And using this tool in a culture like Netflix, well, I'd have to say it's probably easier because the entire culture top down is using the keeper test. Everyone is familiar with it. If it isn't part of your culture, then don't worry, you can definitely start to use this com- this conversation and this question with your colleagues and it's something that you can work towards. So this episode is a great door opener, a conversation starter, and also reading the Netflix book. So you can maybe share that with some of the people you work with. It's called No Rules Rules. And it can help to introduce this thinking into the culture too. So just because your entire company isn't using this candid approach to feedback, it doesn't mean that you can't start to create a microculture on your team of how you do want to handle these conversations. Don't feel like you have to wait around for the entire company to change to start to do things differently within your area of the company. So microculture is a brilliant way to Take the change that you want to see and implement it in your area. Think about it like a bubble that you have around your team or your department of doing things in a certain way, things that might be different than the rest of the organization. So I've used this approach before as a leader, and I've also seen it used with great success. And what often ends up happening is after a couple of months, you get people inquiring, hey, what are you guys doing differently over there? Or what are you putting in the Kool-Aid over there to make people so happy and engaged all the time? And the next thing you know, people are going to be coming to you and asking your team for questions to learn from you and your techniques. So this is a great leadership opportunity to implement the Keeper Test as long as you're all up to speed, all bought in, and you discuss it before you start to use it. Now, One other note before I wrap up from this employee perspective is don't take things personally, right? This is one of our four agreements. Don't take things personally. If you don't pass the keeper test, 
then obviously you want to do a little digging around. You want to find out why. You want to see if there are specific things that you can do to change about your work, about yourself, about your attitude. And in many cases, however, I do see a scenario where there just isn't the right fit for a role. For example, someone is doing work that isn't really their ideal work. They're not fully engaged. They're not fully interested. So no wonder they're not being high performers. So it's not personal. It just means that, you know what, it's time to move on and it's time to find something that really lights you up and really gets you excited. Now, I want to share another part of the Netflix culture philosophy. They believe that, and this is it, I quote, adequate performance gets a generous severance. Again, adequate performance gets a generous severance, which translates to don't just kick someone to the curb if they don't pass the keeper test. If they're doing their job and they're trying and they're making an effort, then when you do let them go, you have to make sure that you give them enough runway to take the time to find themselves the right job. So be generous with your severance. Now, one other fascinating part of their culture that I was really impressed by was their talent retention strategy. Reed believes in striving to always maintain something he calls high-density talent high-density talent, which means he wants to attract only the best of the best, and he would rather pay top dollar to hire someone who's really going to be outstanding, who's really going to be worth it, rather than hiring, say, four to five inferior people who are just going to require a lot of managing and do the basics of what is required of them. So to facilitate and really maintain high-density talent, he always has to pay top-of-market salary to all his employees, not just his programmers, not just his salespeople, and encourage them to research what the going market rate of their salary is and to do this annually, to do it on a regular basis. And what I love about this is that they are taking the responsibility and the accountability to know what the going rate of their salary is. And they're being completely transparent with their manager, kind of like distributed responsibility. Now that is a dedicated and all-in retention strategy. Okay, it's time to wrap up this episode on tolerating underperformers. If it hit a nerve with you, or if it rang true to you, then I really encourage you to take the necessary action. Take time to think about who on your team you would fight to keep and who you wouldn't. Deep down inside, you know exactly what you need to do. And if you are on the other side of the keeper test, then really check in with yourself about how you're doing and set yourself up in the right way to have that conversation with your manager. You deserve to know where you stand. I'm just here to hold the mirror steady for you as you look right into it. Now it's time for you to take action. While parting ways with an underperformer may initially feel like a cruel thing, it is truly the kindest thing that you can do for everyone involved including the underperformer. So to recap what you learned today, you now understand that tolerating an underperformer is not an isolated incident. Everyone else around you will be impacted by it. There is a ripple effect. 
You now understand what the keeper test is and how to use it with your team members. If you are an employee, you understand what the keeper test prompt is, how to use that with your manager. And you also understand what a microculture is, why you would want to build one, and how to start building one within your organization. Don't wait for that big steamship to change directions. Start to innovate, start to be entrepreneurs and do things differently within your team, your area of the company, or within your department. You are empowered to do that. All right. If you enjoyed this episode, if you learned anything, I would love, love, love you to share this episode with a friend, with a colleague, with your boss, a coworker, or share it on social media and also rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you listen to. Thanks for tuning in today and for being part of this community. And remember, any fear, any resistance that you hold inside of you that you feel, it is simply just your greatness in disguise.